Huh, friends. How are you doing? Everybody okay? Well, I'm glad you're here. Today we continue a series studying the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation 2 and 3, the Apostle John records seven letters written by Jesus to seven first century churches. And in each of those letters, Jesus tells the church what he thinks about their faith. Now, as we have studied these letters together, we're asking him to do the same for us. In fact, why don't we invite him to do so now? Would you mind if we prayed again? Is this too much prayer for church? Is that okay? Join your hearts with me. Lord, we thank you for these letters. We thank you for speaking through them to countless Christians from centuries past. But now we pray you speak through them to us today. May the truth we discover spur us to action. Lord, some of us, because of our behavior, are on a collision course with destruction. So awaken us. Stir us. Do whatever you got to do to get our attention today. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Earlier this week, I was struggling to find a phrase to encapsulate the theme of this letter. Couldn't figure it out. So I consulted a colleague. I went into the office and I explained to my colleague the situation at Sardis. That's the church we'll study. I told her the story of a church with a reputation of spirituality, but a reality of superficiality. Jesus sent this letter to get their attention and get our attention before it's too late. So I asked my colleague, how do I sum up this sermon in a sentence? After a moment of consideration, my polished pregnant friend who wants to remain anonymous (laughs) looked me in the eye and declared, check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) So that's the point of our passage today. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. A few weeks ago, I talked about bathroom scales, and I just bought a new one. This is a great scale. In addition to checking my weight, this scale checks my BMI, my muscle mass, my body fat percentage, and then it syncs to my iPhone so that I can keep the data in front of me. And friends, I I will tell you, I have found the simple act of checking my numbers has helped me stay aware of my chub factor. (laughs) If I gain any weight, an icon on the app gives me a frowny face to shame me. (laughs) Frankly, I don't care what the icon thinks of me, but I'll tell you, simply seeing the data in the morning helps me make better choices throughout the day. Last week, I was in Chicago for seven days. Now, typically, if I take a seven-day trip, I will gain 10 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. It's not my fault. I have a gluten allergy. Gluten makes me fat. (laughs) 
when I take a trip, my routine disappears, and so does my discipline. So guess what I did this trip? I packed my scale. That's right. I lugged this blooming bathroom scale to the O'Hare International Airport, and all week long, it influenced my choices. When I went to Panera Bread Company in the morning, and I longed for the cinnamon roll and the bacon souffle and the cheese danish and the entire loaf of French bread that they would cut into little slices that I would eat with those little pads of butter. Though I longed for that food, earlier that morning my new scale told me the truth about where I am now and reminded me where I want to be and it inspired me to order the egg white breakfast sandwich. Instead, the simple act of checking myself reminded me who I want to be, a less puffy pastor. <laughs> Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Today we'll study the letter to the church at Sardis. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to begin our study with a history lesson. Because the background of the city sets the scene for the letter. Sardis was one of the most stunning cities in Asia Minor. However, much of what made the metropolis of Sardis stand out predated the writing of this letter. Over the centuries, Sardis lost some of its luster. When we come to Sardis of the first century, we find a, a city that's still prosperous, but it's best known for the glory of the past, not the present. By the time Jesus dictates this letter to the Apostle John, the city is in decline. Now, the oldest part of this city was, uh, was an Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis rose 1,500 feet above the surrounding area. A sheer rock face encircled the city to the north and east and west. Only the south could be accessed on level ground. Thus, many considered Sardis an ideal stronghold for military defense. It was virtually impregnable from attack. Sardis was renowned for its powerful defense. It was renowned for its wealth. Sardis declared they were the first city to perfect the dyeing of wool, and that industry brought riches to the city. Additionally, Sardis became the first city to mint gold coins. The ancients believed that Midas hid his gold in the springs near Sardis because gold dust was discovered in the water. In sum, Sardis was legendary for its money. It was legendary for its might. By the 6th century BC, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. The Lydian king Croesus ruled from, Saudi, some, from Sardis with an air of confidence. He had so much money and so much power, no one could stand in his way. Croesus was so confident, he picked a fight with Cyrus, not Miley, not Billy Ray, the Cyrus, the king of Persia. You may be familiar with that name because he's mentioned multiple times throughout the Old Testament. The battle with Persia did not fare well for the Lydians, so Croesus retreated to his fortified city, believing his fortress to be invincible. But Cyrus sent one of his soldiers to climb the cliff, which was deemed unscalable. The soldier entered the city undetected and opened the front gates to the Persian army. 
To the shock of the ancient world, Sardis fell to Cyrus in glorious fashion in 546 BC. The phrase capturing Sardis became an expression for doing the impossible. Then, a little over 300 years later, history repeated itself. Antiochus the Great laid siege to the city. He sent a company of 15 men to make the impossible ascent, and they caught Sardis unaware again. Sardis only had watchmen observing the pass to the south. The small band of troops penetrated the city, opened the front gate, and the army of Antiochus came in. Now, that's a little background behind the letter. We will find, according to Jesus, the city's past foreshadows the church's future. You see, the church at Sardis was renowned for its great deeds and renowned for its great strength. They were famous among other churches for their spirituality and commitment. But the church was blind to the fact that their faith was a facade. They were unaware of their weaknesses. They were oblivious to the imminent consequences of their action and inaction. So this letter is an intervention. Jesus sends it to get their attention. Maybe he wants to get your attention with the same letter. I'll ask you, are you taking your soul seriously? You may be closely attuned to market trends, but are you aware of what God wants to do in you? You may be able to predict the best way to make friends, to make money, to make your boss love you. But how good are you at gauging the condition of your soul? Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Jesus begins his letter to the church of Sardis as he begins the other six letters. It's addressed to the angel or messenger of the church. And as we've seen each week of our study, the words Jesus uses to describe himself have special meaning to the specific church addressed. Revelation 3 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Throughout the series we've seen uh, the letters in Revelation read differently than other New Testament letters. They're filled with striking images and apocalyptic warnings. Words are often symbolic. Metaphors have hidden meaning that require careful contemplation. Here, for instance, the seven spirits of God probably refers to the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit, with seven conveying the idea of completion or perfection. You see, the church in Sardis was in bad shape, And Jesus wants them to know that he holds in his hand the only means of reviving them to life, the Holy Spirit of God. Will the church look to the Lord and receive the gift he offers? In prior letters, we've seen Jesus begin by recognizing the church's strength. He says, I know your deeds. But in his letter to Sardis, the strength he recognizes is actually their weakness. Jesus says, verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The church at Sardis developed a reputation for their spiritual maturity throughout the churches in the region. Maybe the other churches heard the rumors of their serving and their giving and their in-depth Bible studies. Perhaps their worship services were legendary. Whatever the details, the church at Sardis was known as a very spiritual church. But contrary to popular opinion, the church is simply congratulating themselves for the accolades of the past. They used to be strong. They used to be rich in love. They used to be spiritually alive. Jesus says, 
I know your deeds. You had a reputation of being alive, but in fact, you're dead. And today, this morning, all across America, churches are filled with the dead. I see dead people. People who project the image of faith and hope and love. People who, at first glance, love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. But their faith is not a fact. It is a fantasy. I wonder if the deception at Sardis was accidental or intentional. Maybe it was pretense. Maybe they were just trying to look spiritual. In Matthew 23, Jesus called out some of the religious leaders saying, Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. In the law of Moses, the Israelites were commanded to wear tassels on the corners of their garments as a reminder to keep the commands of the Lord. Now, to lengthen the tassel was to draw attention to one's holiness. They fashioned leather boxes called phylacteries in which they would place key texts from the law. Now, I'm sure these were originally created as a spiritual aid, but by Jesus' day, it became an opportunity to parade one's piety. If I make my phylactery a little bigger, maybe a little more ornate, you might see how seriously I take God's law. Jesus said everything they do is done for people to see. Let me ask, why do you do what you do? Would you rather please God secretly or publicly receive the praise of the people around you? Would you rather look holy or be holy? Would you rather look generous or be generous? Your answer to that question will change the way you live out your faith. In verse 1, Jesus says, I see dead people. But then he calls them to attention with five imperatives found in verses 2 and 3. The five commands are wake up, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. We'll look at them one by one. First, verse 2, wake up. In a military context, this word means to stay alert or be watchful. Think of a watchman on the tower of an ancient city. The watchman's job is to constantly scan the horizon for approaching danger. If the watchman fails to stay alert, the city would fall to enemy attack. Does any of that sound familiar? The church of Sardis would have immediately recalled the infamous invasions of Cyrus and Antiochus. This city was conquered because the watchmen were looking the other way. Jesus says to this church, wake up, beware. Words used elsewhere in the New Testament, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil. You know, the concept of Satan in our culture has been watered down and romanticized as a mythic figure with horns and a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder whispering into your ear eat the cake you need the protein (laughs) but the Bible paints a different picture he's a lion hoping to eat you alive 
Have you ever had an enemy? Someone who's made it his goal in life to see you fail? If you had a colleague at work who longed to see you fired, wouldn't you be wary? Wouldn't you be on guard? Well, believe it or not, there is someone who is looking for any and every opportunity to use his power to weaken your faith and watch you fail. He is plotting your spiritual collapse. That's why we stay alert. Maybe you need to wake up and smell the coffee. Maybe you need to wake up and smell the stench of the lion's breath before it pounces on you. Seriously, is there anything about your faith or your faithfulness upon which he could pray? Jesus wants you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Now, you may be a person of great spiritual strength. Perhaps you have whole books of the Bible committed to memory. You pass the early hours of the morning meditating on Habakkuk in Hebrew. But what's your greatest weakness? Pride, fear, lust, insecurity. Maybe your vulnerability is thinking you aren't vulnerable. If your selfish ambition is leading you to crush the careers of your colleagues, wake up. If your pursuit of power and fame is robbing your spouse and children of quality time with you, wake up. Picture your marriage crumbling as you drift apart from your spouse. Picture your kids alienated from you as they grow up with a disengaged mom or dad. Maybe for you, it's alcohol. Look, it didn't used to be a problem, but now you need it in a different way. You tell yourself you can go without it. You tell yourself that it's not a problem, but it's a problem. You use it to cope. You use it to escape. You use it to numb yourself from the pain. But drinking only alleviates the pain momentarily, and drinking is creating new pain for the people you most love. Wake up. Check yourself before you wreck yourself and others. There's a second imperative, verse 2. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen translates a Greek word, sterizo. Sterizo means to establish, to support, to stand something on its feet. Jesus says, verse 2, Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. In the New Testament, we find passages that say, God strengthens us. We find passages that say we strengthen each other. But here Jesus puts the responsibility on us to strengthen ourselves. Yes, others can help, and God's grace is essential from beginning to end. But the point is, you and I need to take ownership of our faith and do whatever we need to do to get stronger. Your wife can't read your Bible for you. Your mom can't pray your prayers for you. You've got to own your own faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I use multiple mobile electronic devices throughout my day. Laptop, iPhone, iPad, headset, I even use an old iPod for audiobooks. Every day and throughout the day, my day is filled with devices. But I am diligent about keeping them charged. If I am near a plug, I will plug in. Because you never know when you'll need to be mobile. Here's a charge check. Check your phone. Boom, 98%. Ready for a natural disaster, people. 
Hey, you never know when you'll need to be mobile. What if I am rushed to the hospital for a medical emergency? What if there's a hurricane? What if there is a zombie apocalypse? You got to keep your devices charged and you got to keep your backup chargers for your devices charged. It's perfectly logical and reasonable, isn't it? Now, my family members don't take their charges so seriously. I'll ask my teenager before she leaves the house. How's your charge? She says, it's great, Dad, 12%. 12%. You couldn't Google zombie apocalypse with 12%. But rather than run about the house, constantly plugging in everyone's devices, I have introduced an axiom to help them take ownership. I say to them, take responsibility for your charge. You can quote me on this. Take responsibility for your charge. That goes for smartphones and that goes for souls. My friends, the problems and pain of life can drain your soul every day. Every day. So do what David did when he was all alone and caught between a rock and a hard place. We read about it last summer. First Samuel 30, verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Some people sit in their misery and wait for God to zap them. But others go and search for God even when they can't see him. So let me ask you, no matter where you are on this spiritual journey, what are you doing to strengthen your soul in this season? How do you keep yourself charged so you're ready to respond to life and to respond to people, even soul-sapping people, with love and joy and peace and patience? Friends, if you can't think of a handful of things you're doing to charge your soul, then, friends, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Three more imperatives. We'll work through them quickly. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember. The chances are high if you've been journeying with Jesus for a while, but your faith is getting wobbly. You may not need new insight or a new spiritual discipline. Maybe you just need to do what you used to do. Maybe you just need to do what you saw your friend do. Samuel Johnson wisely observed, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. Are you sure you need to discern God's will on whether you should keep working on your marriage? Or do you already know the truth and you just need to be reminded? Then Jesus says, we should hold fast to our faith. Again, he uses a vivid verb, tereo in Greek. Tereo means to guard, it means to, to watch over protectively, metaphorically, it means to observe or, or obey. Then Jesus says, verse 3, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Repentance, to keep it simple, is changing the way we've been thinking and acting. It's about reorientation and redirection. The Hebrew word for repentance literally means to turn. Repentance is a decision to change, and it's the action that follows. So look at the two verses together. First, wake up, verse 2. Next, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God 
Third, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Fourth, hold it fast. And finally, repent. After the commands comes the warning, verse 3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Revelation 16, verse 15, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Back to chapter 3, verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Remember Sardis's well-known industry? They were famous for dyeing fabric, which makes this metaphor of white clothing especially vivid. Jesus says, as spiritually dead as you are, there are a few among you with a life-giving faith. But Jesus doesn't give up on the spiritually dead. There's still hope. Jesus knows something about resurrection. There's still time to turn. There's still time to overcome. Verse 5, the one who is victorious, or literally the one who overcomes, will, like them, like the people dressed in white, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. Even for those with soiled clothes, there's still time. There's still time. And the fact of the matter is some of us have walked in today with soiled shirts. And we got to get them clean. Maybe we want to get them clean. But those stains don't come out very easily. In fact, someone's got to die to make them new again. Later in Revelation, the Apostle John writes, verse 11 of chapter 7, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If your clothes are soiled, Jesus wants to make you clean. The letter to the church of Sardis concludes by calling us all to listen. Verse 6 of chapter 3, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus concludes all of his letters with this phrase. It is an all call, not just to the church at Sardis, but to all the churches reading this letter down through the ages. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, I think it's particularly important that we hear the words of this letter because their circumstances have something in common with our circumstances. In the previous letters that we've studied, each church faced pressure from the outside in the form of persecution, but there was no mention of persecution in Sardis. 
Two churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, dealt with the deception within the church. Their prophets, dubbed Balaam and Jezebel, found subtle and not-so-subtle ways of encouraging sin and compromise in the community. In Sardis, no such pressure is mentioned. No harassment, no heresy. They're just lazy, lax, indifferent, dead. You may not be under the pressure of Pergamum, but are your clothes getting soiled like Sardis? Are you getting spiritually sleepy? Maybe it's time you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Hey, maybe you have a reputation of righteousness. Everyone looks to you as a spiritual leader. You know a lot of Bible. On the outside, everybody thinks things are wonderful. You're strong and mature. But what's going on on the inside? What are the things we don't see about you? Is your marriage a mess? Is your bitterness getting the better of you? Have you been focusing on the wrong things? Earlier I asked, would you rather look holy or be holy? Search your soul honestly. Do you put more energy into the obvious acts of religion than the less obvious but more important attitudes of your soul? Are you a servant at church but a jerk to your roommate? Do you sing to the Lord on the weekends but shout at your kids on weekdays? Maybe it is time to stop worrying about how you look and get serious about who you are. And let's ask God to help. Will you pray with me? All seeing God. You see what no one else sees. You see hidden action. You see hidden motive. Even when we've deceived everyone, including ourselves. So show us who we really are. That our words and deeds and thoughts and attitudes may bring glory to you. Stop us before we do more damage. Let this letter be an intervention for us too. To take our faith seriously. For some of us over the summer, we got spiritually sleepy. Awaken us, Lord. And as we see the truth about ourselves, help us trust your forgiveness, trust your unfailing love. Help us to see that our sin is wildly outmatched by your grace. And may we reach for that grace to help us change. I pray also for my friends who... 
for journeying with us today, who've been wounded by religious people like the Church of Sardis. People who looked really spiritual on the outside, but once they got close, they got burned. Lord, I pray for that guy or gal in the room. May they hear this. May they receive this. Healing is available. And may you help us be a safe community in which they can heal and they can grow and they can thrive. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus who writes really good letters. Amen. How about some homework? Here's your first assignment. It's a little obvious. Check yourself. I don't think I said that correctly, did I? I think it's check yourself. <laughs> to quote my colleague. Uh, really, compare where you are today with where you were six months ago or where you were a year ago. Are you loving God and loving others today more than you did last August? Have you grown or are you still struggling with the same problems, the same thoughts, the same frustrations, the same sins? Check yourself. One of my favorite authors was Dallas Willard. I, I quote him often in my sermons, don't I? I quote him often in my everyday conversations. Just ask anyone near me. Dr. Willard was professor of philosophy at USC, and he's written some of the most influential books on spiritual formation. One day, a friend asked Dr. Willard this question. Dallas, how do you monitor the condition of your soul? Okay, when someone like Dallas Willard answers a question like that, you better be listening. Dallas, how do you monitor the condition of your soul? Dr. Willard immediately responded, I regularly ask myself, two questions. Am I growing more or less irritated these days? Am I growing more or less discouraged these days? By those standards, let me ask you again. How you doing? What's the condition of your soul? First, check yourself. Secondly, Ask God to check you. Ask God to check you. Now that may sound like a strange assignment because doesn't God know everything? Doesn't God see right through you? Absolutely. But it is an essential component of the process that we invite God into this process. Because God has a way of helping us see truth that we are blind to. In fact, I want, I want to hand you a prayer to pray. It's one of my favorite prayers. I pray it regularly. And it's lifted straight from the psalm, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. In fact, this will be your verse for the week. David writes this prayer, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way 
everlasting. Carve out some time, maybe every day of the week. Maybe you want to do it early in the morning if you're a morning person. Maybe you want to do it late at night if you hate morning people. What? <laughs> Carve out some time, just five minutes, just ten minutes if that's all you can give it. And pray this prayer honestly before God. And wait. Listen. Think through the different aspects of your day or your previous day. The meetings, the conversations, what you did with your time. And all the while pray, Lord, search me. What do you want me to see today? What do I need to work on today? See what he does. See what he shares with you. And see how you grow. Check yourself. Ask God to check you. Here's a third assignment. Find a friend to check you. Yeah. That's going to be hard. But it is essential. Probably one of the most common ways God speaks. Find somebody who loves God and loves you and ask him, what am I missing? What do you think I need to work on? What do you think I need to learn in the Lord these days? Finally, here's an assignment. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. We're going to do what David did. Strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Uh, yes, it is God's grace from beginning to end. And this has to be done within church community. Absolutely. But you and I personally have a role to play. So what are you doing to grow stronger? I think it's great that you came to church today. This is a spiritual discipline, and, and I hope it helps. I hope it helps. That's why we come together on a regular basis. It, it helps all of us to keep growing, to, 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 to keep hopeful. Stay challenged. But what else are you doing? Do you have a couple disciplines that are bringing you closer to Jesus? Or are the ones you've been using fizzled out? If so, Find new ones. You've got to own your personal journey of faith. Try something new in this season. Ask a friend what she's been doing. See if it works. If you'd like some ideas, I often recommend this book, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook by Adele Calhoun. A lot of you own this book. This is the new cover, by the way. I don't know if we have any more of them back. It looks like we might have sold out of them because I didn't think to recommend this until the last second we didn't get them ordered in. But we'll have more next week. This spiritual disciplines handbook, I don't know, some 70, 75 spiritual disciplines that have been historically important through the life of the church through the ages. And uh, uh, Adele Calhoun just walks us through how to start, what this might look like for you. If you're looking for a new way to connect with God, get this book. We'll have more copies next week. Get it online. Get it on your Kindle or your iPad or whatever you might have and see what the Lord teaches you. Please stand with me. If you'd like to, to download this graphic from the day or our verse for the week, you can do so at our online bulletin. Also, we'll post it on our social media accounts later this week. Before you go, I want to thank my friend Derek again for uh, sharing his heart with us about volunteering. And Derek did so at all four of our weekend services. You are a gift, my friend. And, uh, and I want to say to you, 
We'd love for you to dive in. As Derek said, if you're looking for a way to connect to our community, if you're looking for a way to give back, we love to partner with one another to do what we do, and we'd love to have you on the team. If you feel like this is the season for you, if God's prompting you, if God's prodding you, head back to the back. Go to one of those tables. Talk to one of our volunteers, and they'll get you connected. Uh, we'll get you in the right seat that, that, we think might, that you think might be best for you. Also, if you'd like to receive prayer, we'll have some wonderful people, many of which are volunteers, who will be waiting here at the front ready to pray for you. So make your way up as the service ends and, and invite them to do so. My prayer for you this week, how about if we just keep it simple? May God help you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Thanks for coming today. Grace and peace.